Thank you for joining us for today's Real Life Today Bible Study with Dr. Brad Witt from the Book of Romans. Thank you for your prayer and support that enables us to share this practical biblical teaching. So grab a Bible, a notebook, and a pen, and let's study God's Word together. Romans chapter 2 this morning, guys. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And uh, this morning, we're going to begin to pick up speed, all right? So we kind of got bogged down that first chapter. That's all right, because it's a lot of heavy stuff. We're hopefully going to begin to pick up speed today. And uh, we're going to try to cover the first 16 verses uh, of Romans chapter 2. We're looking at this morning, when being good isn't good enough. So let's read the verses together and uh, begin to walk our way through them. Uh, Paul says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to the repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation into the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek to glory, honor, uh, seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. I remember when I was a teenager... I played one year uh, of basketball on the Mile High School uh, basketball team, and uh, shortest kid on the on the team wasn't any good. It took me didn't take me very long at all to realize number one I wasn't any good, and number two I didn't really like it. And there was another young boy on the team, and um, he was even worse. Um, young, small, couldn't jump, couldn't play. And then there's another boy on the team who was absolutely amazing. I mean, he was absolutely he's like seven feet tall, not quite, but just just about. And uh, if you've ever been around boys in the gym uh, on the high school basketball team, they want to see how far they can jump. And usually around a, a gym, there's going to be a, li- a line of uh, paint where there's a color change. And I don't know what the height is, but it, it's up there, 8, 9 feet, 10 feet, whatever it is. And uh, a lot of times the boys would see who could jump the highest and get their hand the highest above that color. And, uh, and so this little boy was really challenging this tall tree of a guy. And I can beat you, I can jump higher than you can. And so he would run and he would jump. I mean, and his hand wouldn't even get anywhere close to that color line. And then Tree uh, would run and jump and his hand would, would come in. I mean, that much farther. I mean, feet and feet and feet above uh, that color line. I mean, just he, he would jump, I mean, a, a time and again higher uh, than that young, uh, that small boy. And after they'd done that a couple of times, the young boy, the small boy, looked over at Tree, this big, tall guy. He said, let me see how thick your soles are. And uh, he said, see, that's the difference. Your soles are that much thicker than mine. That's kind of a silly illustration, but that, that amount of soul is not going to make that much difference. And the same is true when we compare our righteousness to God's. There are some people who live better lives than us. There are some people that live better lives than others. And yet when you compare even those good people's lives to the righteous perfection of God, none of us have any room to brag. And so as the the apostle comes here to Romans chapter 2, he's dealing with in some ways what has been referred to in recent years as moralistic therapeutic deism. 
that term first came out in 2005. Uh, it was introduced in Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It was written by Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton. And uh, basically it was a study of uh, 3,000 teenagers uh, and uh, in which they, they, they studied, you know, basically the religious beliefs of, of teenagers. And what they discovered was is that they all had this moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, what is that? Well, it's a belief in a God, uh, God exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, number one. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal, number three, of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. And so that's basically what Paul is talking about here. I call him the moralist. He's talking here now. He's moved from chapter one where you're talking about just the rank pagans, the heathens. And now he goes and he begins to talk to this moralist. And so the Apostle Paul knew that the self-righteous, moralistic, therapeutic deist, the moralist, is going to say a great big hearty amen to everything that he's already said in Romans chapter 1 as he's assessed and accused the heathen. As, and, and so what Paul does is he begins to expand his argument to show, as he kind of has already laid out, that all ungodliness and unrighteousness of, of men that includes moralists as well as the most depraved, debauched, uh, pagan heathen. And so the most moral of men, as you begin to move here in Romans chapter 2, are, are basically condemned on, on, on three accounts. Number one, by their own judgments. If you look in verse 1, For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And so <clears throat> it's obvious, hey, the moralistic therapeutic deist, uh, the moral man, the moral woman, the moralist, if you will, they're not going to be involved in all the, the crime and the vice and the depravity that we saw back in Romans chapter 1. Uh, all the, the sexuality, the perversion of those pagans and those heathens. Or Paul couldn't refer to them as being moral. Uh, but he was inwardly the same. The life of that moralist really is no different than the outward living of the uh, pagan. M maybe he didn't commit adultery, but he did lust. And by the way, our Lord said that that's in the same category of sin back in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, maybe the moral man doesn't steal, but he covets his neighbor's bass boat or his gun or his truck or his house or something like that. And uh, stealing and covetousness are listed together over in Mark chapter 7. Uh, maybe he didn't commit murder, but he hated his brother. And the Bible says if you hate your brother, uh, you're guilty of murder, First John chapter 3. And so the behavior of the moralist, it condemns him just as much, just as much um, as the others uh, who are around him. It, it, the, the behavior of the moralist condemns him uh, as wrong as others um, is present within himself. <clears throat> it's just not quite as obvious. And so when the moral man condemns them, basically what he's doing is he's condemning himself. So they're condemned by their own judgments, but they're also condemned by truth. If you can see that in verses 2 through 5, uh, when God judges, it's always right. It's always according to truth. He, matter of fact, he never changes. His truth never changes. Truth never changes. Truth uh, is not a matter of um, um, uh, society or anything like that. Truth is truth. He says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And so the moralist may try to hide the facts, 
but God always detects and exposes them. His, his searching eye is always uh, on the lookout. It detects, it finds, exposes uh, the truth. It's like the little boy who would try to sneak some cookies and treats one day. And uh, he'd gotten up in the cabinet and he had taken the stuff and he'd eaten it across the house and he'd hidden it behind the couch, not thinking his mom would find him. But what she did, she saw the wrappers and, and the crumbs and, and the pieces of candy all the way across the house and she followed the trail right to him. Uh, basically, he created a chain of evidence that led his mama directly to him. And so the effort to hide the truth uh, from God, I mean, it's just equally as futile. Uh, to, de deny, to deny what God knows to be true is, as Paul says, to despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. You know, it's better to confess than to deny. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that's the only way to deal with our sins. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, but the problem that the moralist, the moral therapeutic deist, uh, the problem that the moralist has is that his pride is not going to allow him to acknowledge that he needs God's goodness, God's forgiveness, uh, as much as he th thinks it's obvious that the heathen and the pagans do. And so what Paul says is, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And so after year after year after year after year of just overlooking and glossing over his own personal sin and guilt, the moralist, the moral man is going to find that on the day of God's righteous, perfect judgment, that he is just as guilty and has just as much to account for as the most depraved, debauched heathen. And so the moralist is condemned by his own judgment, condemned by truth, and also by his own works. You know, everybody always wants to blame somebody else. This, again, it goes back to the, uh, the little comic strip um, where you have the little family circus, where you have the little ghost-looking thing running around, not me, not me, not my fault, not my fault. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the mom who kills her children, she blames the fact that she was mistreated when she was young. It, it's, it's like the... Uh, the the person who claims that you know they embezzled millions and millions and millions of dollars as a result of just all the pressure they were under at at work, but the Bible says that God, in verse six, God will render to every man according to his deeds. And so, when the unsaved, when the lost stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment that we read about there in Revelation chapter twenty, salvation is not going to be the issue. This, at that moment, is the degree, the judgment to determine the degree of the judgment that they're going to receive according to their works. And so, by the same token, the judgment seat of Christ, salvation is not going to be the issue. Salvation is determined before you die. You die lost, you go to the great white throne judgment. You die saved, you, you, you go to the judgment seat of Christ. But there at the judgment seat of Christ, Again, where only believers, Christians, are going to be and appear, God's going to reward Christians according to their works, according to what they've done. And so in both situations, the journey ends right there. And God will expect everyone to take responsibility for their own behavior. So it's our works, not our excuses, that count with God. And so that's the very first thing that you see here in Romans chapter 2, that being good isn't good enough. But then number two, and then lastly today, we see that you have a date with deity, picking up in verse eight. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, 
on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You know, we love to say today, there's nothing more sure than death and taxes. I think we need to add something to that, and that is the fact that one day every man will be judged by God. Uh, Paul says in verse 16, God will judge. It's not a maybe, not a might. God will judge. There's no question in Paul's mind. And so this moralist is going to face judgment just, just as sure as the pagan, the most rank heathen is going to. And Paul describes this judgment in verses 8 through 16 as we get ready to close today. Number one, he says it's going to be terrible. You read that in verse number 8 and 9. You know, years ago, uh, Ted Turner bragged about the fact that he was looking forward to going to hell. Uh, he, yeah, he said that. He said he was looking forward to going to hell. He said, I'm looking forward to dying and going to hell because that's where I'm headed. I think he needs to go study what hell's going to be like because it's not going to be a party with his friends. Paul says down there, it is a place of indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. That's why we should never joke about it. You're not going to hear me make jokes about hell. Pastors and preachers who make jokes about hell are ignorant. You don't joke about hell. Hell is no laughing matter. Hell is not, not anything to be taken lightly. So we don't do that. You don't joke about it. It's not a laughing matter. It's very serious because it's an awful, terrible place where you don't get out. It's a place of fire and torment and outer darkness and all those sorts of things and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a horrible, nasty, awful place. And it's where those who reject God go to forever and ever and ever. Billy Sunday said years ago, I'd sooner be a foot out of hell and headed for heaven than a foot out of heaven, heaven and headed for hell. And so it is going to be a terrible place, a terrible judgment, but also it's going to be impartial. He said, for there is no partiality with God. You know, um, back in Paul's day, he had the same problem that we have in some of our courts today where the judge is going to side with the rich and famous and then those who are kind of the nobodies get the book thrown at them. And I think that's probably why the Bible is so full of all these admonitions and exhortations uh, to make to tell those, hey, if you're judging, make sure you do fairly, make sure you do correctly, because it is human nature to be biased toward one side or another. We even see that in our society today. Aren't you glad that's, that's not God's nature? Aren't you glad? The ground at God's judgment seat is absolutely level, is absolutely level level. And so this judgment is going to be terrible. This judgment is going to be impartial and it's going to be total. It's going to be total, absolutely perfect and complete. So Paul describes it here as we end as the day when God will judge the secrets of men. Years ago, Socrates, famous um, philosopher said he was the wisest man in all of Athens. He was the wisest man of all, everybody would be in laugh at him. What are you talking about? You're the wisest man in all of Athens. What makes you the wisest man in all the Ath all, all of Athens? He said, well, there are a lot of my, my fellow citizens, my fellow Athenians, and uh, who think they know. But I know that I do not know, so that makes me the wisest of all the men. You know, when we try to judge others, 
we're really prone to make mistakes because we often don't know all the facts. But God does. God knows all the facts. God knows the deepest, darkest secrets of every human heart. And not even those things that you think nobody else knows about. Nobody will ever discover. Even after I'm gone, I've already taken care of this. This won't come out. Nobody will ever know. God does. God does. And even those hidden secret things are not going to escape the all-searching, all-knowing, all-righteous, all-pure, all-true judgment of God. So if you're here this morning and you're counting on your goodness, good's not enough. One of these days, you're going to stand before God, either at the great white throne judgment or the judgment seat of Christ. If you don't know Jesus, one of these days, you're going to stand before the judgment or the great white throne judgment. And at that time, there's no do-over. There's no penitence. There's no uh, purgatory, anything like that. Those are lies. Purgatory is a lie. So it's a fantasy. What you do with Jesus in this life determines where you live the next. And so if you've never trusted Jesus, you need to give your life to Jesus today. And if you're a good moral person and you're counting on your morality, your good works to get you to heaven, you're a moralistic, therapeutic deist. Not going to get you one square inch of heaven. And you need to give your heart to Jesus today. If you're here today and you're a Christian, your works do follow you. And one day you're going to be judged, every man according to his works. There at the judgment seat of Christ. So today, if you don't know Jesus, today won't you give your life to him? He loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you so that if you would simply repent, tell him you're sorry for your sin. And surrender your life to him. And you can just use the words very much like that. I repent. I turn from my sin. I surrender my life to you. Please save me. If you'll do that, he will. I will. He will. If you're here and you're a Christian, search your life. Better for you to confess your sins and have him forgive you. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you do that, he will.